What do drag shows, Yankee taxes, and ending hair discrimination have in common? Well, it's all part of Think Locally, Act Locally. We'll talk about it on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show, of course, by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've heard about that already this week, but it's a great way to support the show. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you sign up, and of course, you can purchase one or 20 of my classes there, which keeps this podcast free of charge. Also, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. That's the way we get more people listening and watching. And comment on it on YouTube. You know, It helps the algorithm. Leave a five-star review. Leave a text review where you can. Those are great things. And send me those show requests. I do appreciate what you want to hear. Seeing what you want to hear, I should say. Well, let's talk about this, uh, this topic which is a Think Locally, Act Locally episode that is the theme of the show. And there's these three things might seem to be all kind of strange headlines. And so I mentioned at the top of the show, the three things I'm talking about is one, a Yankee tax, two, banning drag shows, and three, banning hair discrimination. Now, I'm not certain what hair discrimination is, but uh, it's something that I'm going to talk about with this episode on Think Locally, Act Locally. So, one of the most important concepts or unique parts of American government in many ways is this principle of federalism. Now, we know that there are other federal republics or federal confederations, you know, you know, confederations, it's it's a it's a saying a federal confederation is, you know, it's saying the same thing twice. But we know there are other federal governments around the world. Switzerland is the most important example. Canada has one. Mexico actually has one. Their, their government is theoretically a federation. It's modeled after the U.S. federal system. So that's just three examples. We have federal governments around the world. Now, Switzerland has a much more decentralized federal republic than the United States. In fact, you have the cantons having almost absolute power over this. They can veto all kinds of things. Uh, Canada and their legal system has centralized power more in the last, say, 20 years. But certainly they have a federal system. Um, and so when we start talking about federalism, we're not just looking at the United States, but certainly that idea of federalism. What does it actually mean? The concept of federalism. When you go back to the 1760s in the United States and you look at how the U.S. responded to the Stamp Act, they responded in a federal way. You had colonies which, of course, just a few years later, Jefferson is calling states, seven, almost a decade later. But still, 1774, Jefferson had said these were states anyways. But you have these colonies essentially ignoring the Stamp Act. They nullified it. And that response was a federalist, with a lowercase f, response to an unconstitutional piece of legislation by the British Parliament, at least in their mind. They thought this piece of legislation was unconstitutional and unenforceable in the colonies because their own legislatures did not create this tax. You see, what everyone misses about the American War for Independence, it really was a constitutional crisis. What is the nature of the Union 
and the nature of the relationship between the colonies, the separate parts of the Union, and the central authority. That's a constitutional crisis. If you, if you uh, follow or read Jack Green, this is exactly what he's talking about. A constitutional crisis. This is very important to understand when you look at the 1760s going into the 1770s. In fact, Jefferson makes this very clear in the summary view, which is why hopefully you signed up for my course, Reading Thomas Jefferson, because that is a main part of the class. I go through that that situation. And by the way, if you haven't signed up for it yet, if you're listening to this show, you can still get a little discount on it. So uh, if you're on the email list, you know that already. Make sure you're on my email list that you can get that discount on reading Thomas Jefferson. You want that class because it really does provide the the basis for everything moving forward and how we understand the American Federal Republic. So We've got uh, Jefferson in 1774 outlining this constitutional crisis that is the American War for Independence. And then by 1776 in the Declaration, in the last paragraph of the Declaration, Jefferson makes very clear what we have in America, which are 13 independent states. The Articles of Confederation, Article 2, makes this clear. And so the Constitution simply carried forward the Articles, at least the idea of the Articles. The Tenth Amendment reaffirms what Article 2 affirmed. And so you have a federal republic. The Constitution would not have been ratified had people not understood it that way in the ratifying conventions. Now, this week I'm also going to talk in much more detail about this stuff. So I'm going to leave all that for later. But you have a federal system. During the ratification process, there were several things that were pointed out about the federal system. And one of those, of course, is domestic concerns will be under the purview of the states. Only things that were purely of national, or I should say, you know, general concern, were under the purview of the Union. That included two things. Foreign commerce, and of course, interest, in, interstate commerce, not interstate, interstate commerce, commerce between the states. So commerce in that way. Essentially, commerce between separate political entities, whether it was Great Britain or Massachusetts and Virginia, because they were both sovereign entities. They're, they're all states, right? So commerce between states, including the state of Great Britain, and of course defense. And so uh, when Jefferson wrote the summary review, and I talk about this in the Reading Jefferson class, he actually thought that in that particular document, he was outlining that even the British didn't have the right to control international commerce or defense in some ways, as if the legislatures of these states did not give them authorization to do so. Of course, the main position was that they did. I mean, this was what he calls a halfway house, but it's a main position of the American colonists that if they were going to concede anything, and this was John Dickinson, if they're going to concede anything, it's that the empire does have the authority to defend the colonies. But of course, you can't simply tax the colonies for that. And they also have the authority to regulate trade with the colonies and foreign entities. So he would concede that. And that was, again, the understanding of what the Union in the, in the United States was meant to do. So it has two jobs, defense and commerce. That's it. That's it. We wouldn't even be talking about decentralization today if all the Union did was those two things. If you just had members of Congress in the Senate or the House and the President, if all they did was worry about foreign policy, which includes defense, and, of course, K-12 
keeping a free trade zone in the United States, and also regulating trade with foreign powers. If that's all that Congress did, you wouldn't have all the angst and contentiousness in the United States today. Because all these things would go back to the states. Now, you would still have a bunch of dopey leftists and, by the way, dopey conservatives writing about this stuff. Because dopey conservatives are going to complain when states go out of the way to pass progressive legislation. And dopey leftists, progressives, are going to complain when states go out of the way to pass conservative legislation. This is the uphill battle that people like Michael Bolden at the Tenth Amendment Center fight all the time. He gets emails, he puts them out there, from people that just don't get it. They believe in a one nation, indivisible, one size fits all. And this is where you know uh, Steve Bannon, uh, when he was asked about national divorce, made one of the most idiotic statements ever. We can't talk about that now because we've got all these national, these issues to confront. Well, you know what? I'm not going to try to control California. I'm not going to try to control Minnesota. I'm not going to try to control Massachusetts. And the people in those states shouldn't try to control me where I live. Because what all these people, and they want a national profile because it gets them more likes and views and everything else. What all these people don't realize, though, is that the local, what's in your community right now, is the thing that affects your quality of life the most. The people that live there and the policies that are in your local community are the things that affect your life the most. Whether it's your how you're, the relationship between citizens and the police department, the fire department, the sewer and water departments, the trash pickup, uh, your zoning ordinances, all of these things, development issues, all of that stuff, schools, all of that stuff comes down to your local governments. And if we simply return to that kind of model where this is all we worried about, as a citizen, the general government would fade away. It would, it would fade into oblivion. Now, it does affect us a lot because of taxes. And it affects us because those taxes then are used to do things that maybe we agree with and maybe we don't. And so that is an important, that, that power of taxation. And people recognize it in the ratification process. It was one of the main bones of contention. If you take my originalist papers class at McLeanahan Academy, where I go over 101 documents in favor of ratification, the issue of taxation was important. You had people who were opposed to the Constitution, worried about the power of taxation for the central government because they thought it would destroy the power of the states to tax. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But the, the fact is, this power of taxation does, does control people's lives. And then you throw in foreign policy, which is a big deal, right? Foreign policy often reflect, you know, then, then would down, domestic policy is downstream from foreign policy. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect those things. But it is a big deal, and you do have um, foreign policy being uh, something that can affect everyone. Because of war, right? So war, if we're looking at World War III, which at the current moment, it seems like the Democrats and the progressives really want to drag the United States into that. And when I say progressives, I'm talking about the Republicans who are all uh, you know, banging the war drums for war in Ukraine, United States involvement there. It's just absolute suicide and ridiculous. But the fact is, I mean, this is what people want um, the general government to do, right? So here's where we are. If we have more people that thought locally and acted locally, you would, you would have a general uh, uh, retrenchment of these things, and people would start thinking about the local. But let me talk about how important the local is. 
and how it can be either it can reflect the, the political values of the state right? and that it's in. So we're gonna, I'm going to look at two conservative issues and one leftist issue. We'll start with the leftists, in fact, because it's what people don't, don't see. We'll start with the lefties. This is from uh, Ilhan Omar's social media feed. Uh, she says this, Minnesota has passed or on its way to passing universal school meals, mandatory paid sick, whatever that means, Major funding for child care, banning hair discrimination. Again, I'm not certain what, what hair discrimination means. Vote restoration for 50,000 people, driver's licenses for all. And she says, this is how you use a progressive majority. Now, the point of that is to goad the progressives in Congress that when they have the majority, these are the kind of things they need to be doing in Congress. But what she has simply done here is outline how important it is for federalism. Because you see, if you don't agree with any of that stuff, and you have all kinds of people responding to this on the right, you've got the Free State Project in New Hampshire uh, saying it sounds like the anti-New Hampshire, because, of course, New Hampshire doesn't have any of that stuff. But if this is the kind of society you want to live in, then you can go live in Minnesota. I mean, you could move there. You could decide to sell your house, or if you don't own a house, if you're renting a house, you could go look for a job in Minnesota. You could go get one, and you could go live in Minnesota and have these things. It is the perfect response to this. That's beautiful for Minnesota. She's thinking this needs to happen, of course, at the U.S. Congress, which would be all unconstitutional. But this is the kind of stuff that progressives could do at the state level. We saw it with the Dobbs decision. You have various states deciding they're going to uh, pass legislation in response to that decision, either for or against it. And so that's what federalism does. It's the beauty of federalism. You could have a state reflect your political culture. So you can move to Minnesota if you would like to get all of these great free things that Elon Omar thinks are wonderful for a progressive majority. So if you have hair problems, I guess you can go to Minnesota and your hair won't be discriminated against anymore. Wouldn't that be great, right? Your hair is now free from discrimination. If you think that you can't get a driver's license, well, then move to Minnesota so you can have a driver's license. Anybody can have a driver's license in Minnesota. I guess a five-year-old could have a driver's license in Minnesota. I don't know. Uh, if, you are, uh, if you don't have mandatory paid sick... <laughs> then you can go to Minnesota and get mandatory paid sick. I guess they're going to pay you to be sick. I don't know. I know she means sick leave, but it's just hilarious how she, how she phrased this. Mandatory paid sick. Now, if you need uh, some public assistance for child care, go to Minnesota and go get all the public assistance for child care you need. All right, so it's wonderful. And, and look, I'm all for places like Minnesota or California being like putting up a big sign, progressives move here. And every progressive in the country moving to these states. I mean, a big banner, big billboards, you know, big neon signs. Progressives move here. And then they can all move to those states. And they can all live in those states. And they can make them whatever they want to make them. Now, it's amazing when I, when I pick on California a lot. If you look at uh, these rankings that come out of the best places to live, California towns are often listed in that because you do have... A lot of good people in California who have, you know, nice, they live in nice towns out there. Um, 
but the, the state government in California is going so far left, I don't know how that's actually going to happen. And more and more people could just move to California, and they could have, again, their little socialist utopia in California. Or go to Minnesota. I mean, uh, I'm sure the Minnesota, they, they have need for people to shovel snow. All right, so maybe they're going to come up with that next. You know, during the Great Depression, they had they were paying people uh, to sweep sidewalks and things like that. Maybe Minnesota can pay people just to shovel snow. They just have uh, you know show snoveling crews, just people with snow shovels, not not snow plows or anything. But these people just go around and they shovel snow off sidewalks so that you know you can you can no no machines. They just need to give people the old fashioned you know wooden handled plastic flat snow shovel. And let people go out and shovel snow to have jobs. That would be universal jobs for all in the winter. I mean, you'd have it all day long. So that would be great. Now, on the flip side of that, this is this is a progressive state in doing these things. Um, if your hair is a problem, move to Minnesota. On the flip side of that, you have South Carolina. One of the funniest pieces of legislation I've seen in a long time. I love this. South Carolina is passing a Yankee tax, or at least has proposed a Yankee tax. I don't know if it'll actually happen. But a legislator in South Carolina has proposed a Yankee tax. Now, this is hilarious. If you look at places in the United States that have seen massive growth in the price of housing, South Carolina has been one of them. And it's because, as this legislator points out in South Carolina, you've had 4 million people move into the state in the last decade. People primarily from New England and New York, mostly New York. I think New York is the big, New Yorkers have found South Carolina and it's the new Florida, right? Florida for a long time was the place where New Yorkers went. And, uh, but Florida got too expensive, I think. At first, you know, Florida became too expensive. And if you go to the parts of Florida where all the New Yorkers have moved um, in, on the coast, uh, this was happening a lot, you know, in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. And so they built up in those areas. So now what you have are old kind of, you know, old rundown places. There was a lot of land in South Carolina available for people to go buy. And you could build new, new stuff, new, you know, upgraded properties. You didn't have to go in and bulldoze the old thing. It's too expensive to do that. So if you move to some of these places in Florida that had long been the places where, you know, New Yorkers went to retire, it's very 1980s. I was struck when I was in... Uh, St. Petersburg uh, last year, how 1980s this part of the state was. I mean, it just, it hadn't been hit by a major hurricane, so they hadn't, it hadn't been bulldozed yet. Now some of that area has been because they just had a nasty hurricane last year. So they'll all rebuild it and it'll be new and you'll get more uh, New Yorkers and, and Northerners going into those areas because it's new again. So uh, that's going to happen. But South Carolina was this wide open canvas for New Yorkers to go down and build into. And they moved in it in large numbers. And they really changed it. it was, it's changing the political culture of South Carolina, particularly the low country. And locals are tired of it. And so you have this South Carolina legislator saying, you know what? What we're going to do is we're going to pass a $500 tax on people moving into the state. $500. It's not a lot. It should be more. It should be $5,000. You know, $2,500 tax or to get your driver's license and a... But this is what they're doing. They're attaching it to a driver's license, essentially. So, twenty-five. Uh, in his bill, it's two hundred fifty dollars. It should be twenty-five hundred dollars. You really want to keep people out? Charge them five thousand bucks to move there, and they won't go there. 
Most people won't have that kind of cash right up front to go move to South Carolina. It would basically stop all New Yorkers from moving in. Now, you would have some wealthy people that would do it. Uh, but for the most part, you would stop some of the other stuff. So they could keep South Carolina, South Carolina. But this is South Carolina reacting to a situation that we're seeing across the United States where people are moving with their, they're, they're voting with their feet. But in this case, they're not going to South Carolina because they want to be like South Carolina. They're going to South Carolina because they can get cheap land on the coast, at least for a time. And they wanted that cheap land and they got, you know, Charleston is kind of hip now. It's, it's um, as everyone says, it's bougie. It's become this, this really, you know, kind of hip place to go. Uh, it's gentrified. And so that's why New Yorkers are moving there. It's, it's uh, you know, the poor man's Williamsburg for a long time. It, it, you went down there and you felt like you're in the 18th century and you could live in, in, a, in a neat old place and have a neat old house or build a new house that looks old and you could live like you're a southern planter in South Carolina. You could, you could LARP, in other words. Um, and you're a New Yorker and you're doing this. So the, the uh, low country, and of course you've got boating and all, but they didn't want to be like South Carolina. They wanted to vote like they're in New York or New England in South Carolina. They just wanted to have the warm and the land and not be in the miserable place of you know New York City any longer or some nasty place up in New England that, uh, or some city in New England or in New Jersey or something where they, didn't, they don't like that. Now there's pretty places in, in of course, New York and New England, don't get me wrong. But a lot of the people moving to South Carolina are not from those nice places in those states. They're moving from places and cities because they have money and they can go do it. So this is a beautiful response. It's a local response to an issue. You've got, I mean, other states could do this very same thing. You want to move here from somewhere else? You got to pay a tax. Uh, and maybe they could just target it. If you're from these states, you have to pay the tax, but not from these states. I don't know. Uh, that wouldn't be a little more uh, questionable constitutionally. It just has to be a blanket statement. If you're moving in, you have to do this. But the, the thought process, of course, being that if you already live in a great southern state, you're not going to move to South Carolina. Maybe you might move there because of a job or something like that. But you're not going to probably move to South Carolina just because you want to move there. Um, you might want to move there from you know Pennsylvania or uh, or New York because well South Carolina is better, the Low Country. It's a beautiful place down there. Don't get me wrong. You go down to Low Country, South Carolina, it's beautiful. Uh, but don't change it like don't make it like New York. And then finally, we have Tennessee. Uh, the Tennessee legislature on the cusp of passing legislation that would ban drag shows, which is another action by a state trying to outlaw things that do not reflect the political culture of that particular state. And you've got lefties all up in arms over this, saying this is unconstitutional. You can't do that. You can't ban a drag show. Now, there was an article I saw that said um, that Tennessee had the most anti-LGBTQ laws in the United States in the last, say, decade. And it's because Tennessee has decided that does not reflect the political culture of Tennessee. It does not reflect the people of Tennessee. And so you've got people that might want to live in Tennessee because of that, right? If you, if, uh, if you don't want to be hair discriminated, you can move to Minnesota. But if you don't want to have these kind of things in your face all the time, you can move to Tennessee. No one wants to move to South Carolina because they're going to hit you with a $500 tax. So all these states reflect this very beautiful idea of federalism. You see, this is the whole point. All these things under the original understanding of the Constitution, are perfectly constitutional. None 
of these things would be unconstitutional from a federal position. Now, could you argue that maybe they're unconstitutional from at a state level? No. Well, you could, I guess, if the state constitution was against it. But none of these things are unconstitutional from a federal position. None of them. Uh, they are a perfect example of what Tench Cox pointed out in a Freeman when he says, these are all the things the states can do. And he listed all kinds of things. And these are all the things the general government cannot do. And it was the same kinds of things, like hair discrimination. Or uh, the states can pass their own taxes. I mentioned I would talk more about taxes. The thought process in the ratification period was that the states would actually have higher taxes than the general government because the general government's powers were so limited and they could only cover such specific things that the states could tax for all kinds of things. And a tax like this would certainly fall under the purview of a state and the ability of a state to do this. There's nothing unconstitutional about it. There's nothing illegal about it. States can pass taxes like this. And it's a beautiful example of federalism again. So you could have a tax like this in any state. And this does get into the issue of immigration. A few years back, Alabama uh, had essentially a tax on people uh, if you moving into the state, if you, you had to get a driver's license with them so quickly. And I mean, they, they had to do this kind of stuff. And if you wanted to uh, register a car, you had to show a driver's license. Basically, what they're trying to do is cut down on illegal immigration in the state of Alabama. And they did it, and it worked. It worked. You had illegal immigration decrease tremendously into the state. The idea worked. So the states are working in their own constituted authority to do things in South Carolina, and then, of course, I just use an example from Alabama, which would better reflect the political culture and the wishes of the people of those states. The same thing in Tennessee. Of course, Tennessee uh, is a very conservative state. Tennessee does not have uh, a state uh, state uh, sales tax, I think, or a, no, I'm sorry, a state income tax. Tennessee does not have a state income tax. So Tennessee, no income tax in the state of Tennessee. Uh, they do have a sales tax and you have to pay it because you go to these tourist locations and you're going to get you know a huge, uh, in, a huge sales tax there. But no income tax in Tennessee. Uh, uh, so it's, it's great. I mean, I, Florida has the same thing. No income tax in Florida. These states are trying to do things to entice people to set up businesses there. But on the other hand, maybe there's going to come a time they don't want to do that and they want to try to restrict people from moving into those states from places they don't want them to move, right? So, uh, you know, if Tennessee does that, if, if Tennessee wanted to pass this kind of uh, immigration tax, so to speak, they could certainly do it. It would be certainly under the, uh, under the authority of Tennessee to do something like this. Your state, your local area can do these things. That's why I said it's a Think Locally, Act Locally episode. So if you're interested... In these kind of issues, get involved in your local government. Get involved in your county and state governments. These things are important because if you can control those levels of government, you control your quality of life every single time. Uh, New Hampshire is a nice example of this. As all these people have started moving to New Hampshire, libertarians, the people that were already there, of course, are complaining about it. They, they probably wanted to pass some kind of, you know, uh, immigration tax too into the state of New Hampshire. They wish they had done it now. But you've had a lot of people move into New Hampshire that wanted to change New Hampshire and make it what it was, the free state, right? So these people in New Hampshire are going in and they're taking over the government of New Hampshire, the local governments in particular, and these local governments now reflect 
the political culture of, of the people who are now residents of New Hampshire. You could say that South Carolina, I mean, in these areas in the low country where you have all these New Yorkers moving into, then it just starts reflecting the political culture of New York. And while the native people of South Carolina don't like that, uh, and I understand, it, it does reflect those people in those areas. So uh, you have these little enclaves in every state, and this is also the issue of a national divorce. You know, how would that work? This is was brought up a lot. You have all these little blue islands in these red states. Um, well, if you have a state convention, which is what you would have to use for a secession movement to take place, and if you want to have that kind of unilateral secession, which I don't think is illegal, if you had a state convention, but that's the only way to do it, and the people of the state voted to leave the union, that blue enclave goes with it. And that blue enclave is still part of that state. But now what you have, of course, is the state controlling what that blue enclave can and cannot do. And those people in that blue enclave, if they don't want to live in the Republic of Texas or the Republic of Alabama or the Republic of Mississippi, the Republic of Georgia, whatever it is, if you take your conservative state, Republic of Oklahoma, they can leave and go to Minnesota where their hair will not be discriminated against ever again, uh, which would be the most important thing, of course, if you're looking at good government for no hair discrimination. Um, it's one of those issues that I think should be at the top of the list as we're moving forward in 2023 uh, for government to focus on. How can we not discriminate against people's hair? Um, that is... Uh, a major issue in, in uh, campaign in 2023. Um, our hair discrimination is important. So if that's not something that appeals to you, if you want to avoid that kind of thing, Minnesota, the land of a thousand lakes, is your state, or 10,000 lakes, however many lakes they got up there. A lot of lakes. They got a lot of lakes in Minnesota. A lot of snow, too. If that's your thing, you can go to Minnesota. And your hair is free from discrimination. So this is great stuff. Um, think locally, act locally, in action. All of these states doing what they're supposed to do according to the federal system that we have. It's how federalism was designed to work, and it's how we should really think about all of these issues in American government. Tennessee is doing what Tennessee thinks is right to reflect the political culture. So is Minnesota, and we could find countless examples of this across the United States. Federalism is a beautiful thing, and it's what keeps less political conflict at the center from happening. I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.